The Animation Podcast, November 3rd, 2008. The Animation Podcast is sponsored by AnimationMentor.com, the online animation school. Sign up for their free monthly newsletter for animation tips, student profiles, and access to my upcoming Animation Mentor exclusive animation podcast at AnimationMentor.com. Hey everybody, this is Clay Cadis. Welcome to episode 30 of the Animation Podcast. During the week, I'm an animator at Walt Disney Animation Studios, and I create this podcast in my time off. I just took a break from the podcast for a couple months because along with the rest of the crew at work, we were finishing Bolt and I needed all the rest I could get. I got the rest and took a couple trips, and uh, now the show is back, so thanks for waiting. Of course, this show will pick up where the last one left off, and it will be the conclusion of my interview with Eric Goldberg. Eric is the animator behind the genie in Aladdin, and he directed Pocahontas and two sequences of Fantasia 2000. Eric is currently animating on the upcoming film The Princess and the Frog, and as I mentioned in the last show, Eric has finally published his uh, long-awaited book, Character Animation Crash Course, which is uh, full of notes from his animation lectures, and he asked me to mention that there is a new website to go along with the book. It is goldbergcrashcourse.com, so check it out as we settle in for part two of my interview with Eric Goldberg. Okay, well, it's funny because you mentioned doing Ziggy and mm-hmm. drawing with markers. And when I hear people talk about like seeing you draw, they always come away with like, oh my God, it's like he's tracing an image on the page or <laughs> he starts with the foot and goes up to the head and it looks perfect. <laughs> or you actually do draw with a Sharpie. And I was just wondering if you could somehow describe like how you think about drawing, like physically doing a drawing. Okay. I think what a lot of people don't see is that I actually work very lightly first. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll do a very, very quick sketch in very light pencil, and then I'll start building it and tying it down. But I'll get everything I need mentally and physically down in that very light pass first. Um, and I tend to throw out a lot of drawings. I tend to try and find the right pose for the right expression, you know, and I don't go through finishing it a lot of the time or elaborating it a lot of the time mm. unless I feel like it's it's getting in the right place and then maybe I'll put a little more meat on it. Um, and my approach tends to be feeling first, anatomy second. In other words, I like to draw everything that has a sense of give to it and a sense of life and everything that will support the idea of the pose and then build the anatomy on top. I think part of the difficulty with CG animation these days is that you're already starting with anatomy. And so you're already somewhat limited in how you can engineer everything to support a point or to support, you know, a thrust so on and so forth, Mm -hmm. because you're already dealing with kind of boned and hinged characters. Um, You know, I tend to draw more as if I know there's an underlying structure, but I'm looking at the overall graphic shapes and how they would work, you know, in movement. And then when I tie it down, I connect everything together so that the anatomy makes sense. Um, 
I don't draw without sketching, although there's a couple things that I can draw, you know. I can draw the genie's head without sketching, mm-hmm. let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, but there's very little that I draw without at least some loose framework underneath. And I tend to start, you know, with what I think are the most compelling aspects first. Um, and when I said foot, that's not... No, I, I don't tend to start with a foot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I will almost always start with a face, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, Bert Klein, who's animating with me on Lewis here on Princess and the Frog, was asking me how I constructed Lewis's head, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what the order would be. Now, normally you would start by drawing the cranium. And I said, the first thing I draw is the bridge of his nose and his eyes sitting on top of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and then the mouth underneath. It's the anchor. You know, and so that eyes, nose, mouth combination is the central focus. And I can put the eyes in any shape and expression that I want. Then I draw the cranium behind it. Mm -hmm. But what I'm not doing is limiting myself to what the expression should be based on how it sits on a cranium. I'm going for the expression first and then hooking all of it up together afterwards and that gives me the most freedom of movement so that's a great answer (laughs) thanks (laughs) Uh, the genie is amazing but you've talked probably a lot about the genie i've I've seen a lot of interviews online and stuff and it's it's usually about the genie um i don't know if you'd call that a high point in your career but uh i'm sure there's more to come (laughs) (laughs) but is there anything else that maybe you'd like to add about the genie or Anything new come up in the last 15 years? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. Um, I mean, absolutely doing the genie was a career high point, no question. And it was, first of all, the opportunity to animate to Robin Williams is kind of once in a lifetime, you know. And to have the kind of movie where we could actually do that to the hilt is also very rare. Now, other people have animated Robin Williams before and since, but Aladdin, the way John and Ron conceived it, Mm -hmm. was a movie that allowed Robin Williams to be visualized as unfettered as possible um, because he was a shapeshifter, you know? And so it really gave us the most perfect venue for utilizing his voice um and you know there's i can't really think of anything that i can add other than that you know just to give robin my personal thanks Mm -hmm. and and just say you know boy what inspiration and uh you know and even though we didn't actually converse that much during the making of aladdin we had a wavelength thing going, which was very cool. He knew that I knew that he knew. And so he could make a certain voice or a certain noise and know that I was going to pick up on it in mm-hmm. the animation. Uh, and he'd give me these little, you know, tidbits here and there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it was very cool, you know. Um, I mean, the only thing that I would say, I'm not sure if anybody knows this or not they do ask me this question well robin williams must be you know wacky all the time you know boy it must have been great he must have been bouncing off the walls and 
actually he's not. He's very contained and quiet. Hmm. Um, I, I liken it to watching a human Rolodex. You know, when he's not on the mic, you can see him processing and logging everything that's going on. It's like he'd be sitting eating a sandwich and watching television and, you know, you can see the gears turning. He's hmm. making mental notes, but he's not on all the time. Then when they open up the mic, out it comes full strength for about four hours without a break. And that's amazing to me. The amount of energy and effort that he can put in, you know, to really making that concentrated space of time fantastic is, first of all, very physically demanding. And second of all, you know, requires such powers of concentration on his part uh, it's just unbelievable to watch, but he's smart. He doesn't do it all the time just to say, hi, I'm Mr. Shtick. He's not that way. He's actually pretty quiet and, and pretty self-contained mm-hmm. until that mic goes on because he's been storing it and, you know, he can give the best performance and the most energy by doing it that yeah. way, yeah. you know, um, and so that's about the only thing that I would add, really, is just to kind of uh, talk a little bit personally about what I observed with Robin. Yeah, so that's cool. Uh, and this may seem weird, but so among all the animated films that have been made, and knowing your style of animation, and then you directed Pocahontas, which to me is like such a, a restrained style of animation. How do you feel about that? I mean, I okay. I feel lots of different ways about it, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, When Peter Schneider and Tom Schumacher were here uh, and the genie was done and Aladdin was out and was a big success, they asked me, uh, they basically called me in and said, well, you can do one of two things. You know, uh, they've already picked all their leads on Lion King, so the best you could do is be a staff animator on it. Or you can co-direct on Pocahontas. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so naturally I opted for the co-directing because I had wanted to direct anyway. And at the time, you know, Peter said, well, it's a little more like Beauty and the Beast than it is Aladdin. I said, oh, okay, I could live with that. The film got much more serious and much more serious in tone as we continued to make it, largely due to uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg's desires for the film Mm -hmm. um in fact there were times when first of all i was tarred with the comedy brush i was i was the guy who was trying to make things funny all the time and it did confuse me because i thought well they seem to have liked what i did don't they want me to do it (laughs) (laughs) yeah do what i'm good at (laughs) yeah Uh, so um a friend, a mutual friend of ours, when the film came out, um, had uh, Mike Gabriel and Mike Giamo, you know, over to dinner. And the first thing he said to them was, so what'd you do with Eric? Tie him up and throw him in the closet? <laughs> and, um, and there was a time when we just had to drop all the comedy mm-hmm. in the film completely to appease Jeffrey, just to show him that we would get the serious tone that he wanted, you know, and finally we kind of got there. And it was, and we'd been getting a lot of mixed signals all the way 
through because he would laugh a lot at one of the storyboard sequences. He'd say, great, put it up on reels. We'd put it up on reels and then he'd hate it. Um, and we didn't know what went on. So there was never any terra firma until we just decided, okay, we're going to be stone cold dead serious. Mm-hmm. You know, we had Ralph Zondag board a sequence of Ratcliffe arriving in the new world. Very, very straight and dramatic. And, you know, it was at that point when Jeffrey finally said, okay, now I think we can talk. You know, of course what happened towards the 11th hour is that everybody kept saying, oh, well, there's no laughs in this film. We better put some laughs back. Mm -hmm. So fortunately we had, you know, Percy and Miko and Flit as the comedy characters and we could start doing more with them. But to be very honest, uh, you could pull those characters out of the film and still have the same film. Mm. You know, it was like trying to wedge comedy bricks in a house that had already been built relatively structurally sound. And it was difficult. You, you felt like they were an afterthought throughout the whole thing, even though occasionally they paralleled what the human characters were doing, you know, it was a spot gag here, a spot gag there, something with a little bit of charm, but they really didn't have a lot to do with the plot. Mm-hmm. And that always made me unhappy um, because I think one of, the, one of the great things about, say, John and Ron's approach is that the comedy is always part of the fabric of the movie. It's always part of the tone of the movie. You cannot tell the movie without the comic characters, Mm -hmm. you know, and that just makes for a much more unified film than saying, drop all the jokes and then put it in in a second pass in my, in my estimation. Um, And that's kind of what we had to do on Pocahontas. Now there are things on Pocahontas of which I am proud. First of all, Mike Gioma's art direction is stunning, Mm -hmm. absolutely stunning. And, what amazed me is that for a film that's as, quote, realistic as Pocahontas is, his color choices are not. You know, he would use these very vibrant colors to evoke mood and not necessarily to evoke realism, uh, which is my favorite kind of art direction. Yeah. And my wife Susan does the same kind yeah. of thing where she uses colors in a very, very adventurous way. And... You know, I thought what Mike did was amazing and I kind of, you know, kept out of it because I trusted him implicitly. You know, he, Mike and Mike would actually be down in color models and, and Mike would be working with the background artists and mm-hmm. they'd be, you know, figuring out the color palette and everything. And I was in dailies one time and the first scenes of Savages rolled up and Powhatan is purple against this hot yellow flame. And I just went, Okay, I'm going with it because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I knew Mike would make it work, yeah. and it was fabulous, yeah. you know. And in my mind, there's not enough of that in animation these days. I think most animation these days tends to be very, very literal, whether mm-hmm. it's hand drawn or CG, yeah. and that makes me very sad. If you look at classic Disney stuff, they were always adventurous in their art direction, you know, even the most conservative stuff has some adventuresome color choices and lighting choices in it. 
uh, you know, throughout the golden age. And certainly if you think of an Ivan Durrell or a Mary Blair, you know, their color choices, their design choices were very, very graphically interesting and compelling. Um, one of my favorite sequences of Mary Blair's is Once Upon a Winter Time in Melody Time. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a textbook example of how to use color emotionally and not realistically. Uh, there's great moments, you know, like when, um, you know, he, the rabbit sticks his toe in the, in, the, in the cold water and turns <laughs> bright blue. Yeah. But there's other things as well. So, for example, when it looks like they're going to fall off the water flow on the, on the ice flow and uh, the, the boy is skating to save her, they drain all the color out of his face, you know, to actually make him look panicked. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're not – and it's, it's these things throughout the segment – that are really, really interesting, aside from how beautiful the animation is. Um, And, uh, you know, so I think that's something I'm proud of on Pocahontas. Also, at the time, I think it was the most difficult film the studio ever did, Mm -hmm. certainly in terms of the draftsmanship, you know, and I... I used to call Clean Up the Walking Wounded on that film because, boy, did they pull it out of the hat, you know. Yeah, it was hard work. I mean, mm-hmm. I did it a little bit, but I only kind of peripherally saw other what other people had to do, like on Pocahontas' jawbone, because mm-hmm. consistently a thick, straight line. Like, it was terrible hard work. <laughs> it was very, very demanding. Yeah. And the fact that the studio could come up to the plate and and draw it and animate it so compellingly well... Mm-hmm is very much to their credit. You know, just Pocahontas's hair alone, which was in almost constant movement, but also had these line decorish design kicks in it so that you'd have, you know, a a curl and a straight and something that's a little angled that actually was kind of a lick of the hair being flicked in the wind. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's very, very difficult to follow through. And, and, both the animators and the cleanup artists did an unbelievably beautiful job on it. I wish, in hindsight, that we hadn't relied as much on live action as we had. I suppose that if I had it to do over again, we would have used the live action more like reference. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it was a very, very difficult film to make, not the least of which was because of the tone that was wanted. And so the live action became a way of leveling every everyone's viewpoint, so to speak. They could see it kind of raw in the live action, but know emotionally, you know, where the thing might be heading mm-hmm. uh, before we did the animation. doesn't mean that there was an animation we did that didn't have live action. Yeah, we did right. plenty of that. Right. But, you know, there's, there's certainly uh, a compelling amount of live action that we used as reference. <laughs> we shot so much live action, you know, Mike and I would um, spend our lunch hours picking takes. And we, <laughs> we got called on the carpet by one executive who shall remain nameless, um, who told us that we're not using our lunch hours productively enough. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, the thing that I like the most about Pocahontas is probably the thing that people criticize it for the most. Um, They criticize it for being politically correct. They criticize it for being, 
you know, weighted too much towards the side of the Indians and things like that. Well, you know what? Hollywood has done so much damage over the years to American Indians, Native Americans, that I thought Pocahontas actually redressed that point somewhat by actually trying to tell it from, you know, the Native American point of view. And I know Russell Means, who did Palatan's voice, was a huge, strong supporter of the film for that very reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing is, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's preachy, you know, you don't, you know, you don't have to hit it on the head so hard about prejudice and all that kind of stuff. Well, when Mike Gabriel and Jim Pentecost first pitched me the film, it was a week after the LA riots. Um, And I thought, well, if there was ever a time for a film like this about trying to bring two sides together. It's now, and that's one reason that I went on board, and it's still a very compelling reason for me. Mm-hmm. You know, So Oscar Grillo was out in Los Angeles you know, about a couple months after Pocahontas had been released, and we're in the car and we're talking about it. And uh, he was saying what a lot of other people had said, which was, you know, do we really need a movie like this that that actually, you know, talks so much about prejudice in such a preachy way, et cetera, et cetera? And I said, you know, last week, I believe it was the prime minister of Israel, was assassinated for trying to make peaceful overtures to Egypt. You tell me this movie isn't necessary and I don't believe you, you know? <laughs> Yeah. And he kind of took the point. He got it, you know. Yeah. And in the end of the day, Pocahontas isn't a perfect movie, and I'll be the first one to admit that. But I think for so many reasons, its heart is in the right place. And no matter what you can say about it critically, and God knows, have at it, and people have, um, there's still a need for it. I wanted to ask, between shorts and features, it seems like all the pieces are generally the same, but obviously the process is much different. Do they feel very different to you in doing a short versus a a full feature? I think the process of making shorts and making features is much the same, Um, except you're trying to be much more concise in a short. What I will say, just in the way things are done at Disney's, is that the shorts perhaps afford you more of an opportunity to be more personal than the full-blown features are. Um, First of all, you know, on the Fantasia pieces that Susan and I did, I felt, you know, were much more personal and the studio allowed it. Um, You know, the Carnival of the Animals, you know, was basically about nonconformism and kind of celebrating that, uh, you know, and the um, Rhapsody in Blue was very, very personal. Susan and I met in New York and, and you know, we both love New York for so many different reasons. Mm-hmm. And we love the idea of showing, you know, that people's lives affect one another sometimes without even realizing them realizing it. Uh, and, there were certain elements in like the the little girl is actually our daughter is Rachel mm-hmm. uh you know when she was really tiny uh her parents look a lot like my parents uh <laughs> you know and 
there are a lot of personal feelings invested in that film. It's only 12 minutes long, but it's very, very personal and hopefully emotional too, for that matter, mm -hmm. aside from being funny. Um, and I think with a feature film, first of all, you have many more people weighing in about what the film needs to be. Uh, and you have more laser beams focused on it from the general public as well in terms of what their expectations yeah. are, not just of a Disney movie, but of current movies in general um, and how it compares to those and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it seems like people don't really have an expectation of what a short will be. They yeah. just go to hopefully like it. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think that's the major difference between the two is that you have a much broader canvas and a much more difficult job of pulling together all the various strands in a feature than you do in a short. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean shorts can't accomplish the same thing that features can in terms of being compelling, entertaining, and emotional. Uh, and I love the short form in animation. I think really animation was invented for the short form. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if it was Oscar Wilde who said brevity is the soul of wit, but, uh, you know, it's a great phrase. You know, if you can say something compellingly in a very short amount of time, you know, that's better than waffling about it for two <laughs> hours. <laughs> right, um, right. That said, the breadth that you can get in a feature can go much, much deeper. Um, you know, people ask me about the sidekick characters, for example, because I've done a fair amount of them on, on Disney films. And the interesting thing about doing a sidekick character, surprisingly, is that the sidekick character has, has the, in my mind, the largest emotional range of anybody else in the film because mm -hmm. first of all, he's got to carry the comedy. Second of all, you've got to understand that there's something underneath that comedy. And third of all, he's got to feel and you've got to make him feel for the hero or the heroine in the picture, you know? So you've got this whole range from broad to very, very subtle that you have to do. I mean, people ask me what the toughest thing to do on the genie was. And I said, making him sincere, making people believe after bouncing off all the walls that he actually had feelings for Aladdin and, and that that meant something mm -hmm. to him, you know, and if we pulled that off, great. Uh, you know, and the rest of the stuff was just fun. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, but when it does work, it is that much stronger because of the contrast, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and getting those contrasts yet not being out of character, I think is really what gives the character the greatest emotional nuance and range. You know, one of the decisions we made on Phil, you know, in Hercules was that Phil was a character who was kind of hard on his sleeve, bombastic all the time. He had a low boiling point. He would scream. He would, he would, you know, lose his temper, all that kind of stuff. He'd be grouchy. He'd be surly, you know, but he would be volume on high most of the time. When he was really hurt, 
by Hercules because he was trying to tell him that Meg was two-timing him and Hercules didn't want to hear it. And he knocks him out and falls into the pile of gym equipment. The decision we made, and we had varieties of, of deliveries from Danny DeVito in that section, the decision we made was to actually take the most quiet ones to show that when he is really hurt the most deeply, he doesn't fly off the handle and lose his temper. He shrinks down and gets contained because he is trying to control that huge anger that he has inside of him. Mm -hmm. Um, And that made an interesting range for the character because it was a contrast to what you had seen earlier, you know, you could tell he really takes that moment seriously. It's funny because I was going to ask you too about, uh, you've done attractions for theme parks. You've done the Magic Lamp for Disney Sea, which is a 3D CG genie. You've done um, the one in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. which is the gold. A monkey's tail. A monkey's tail. And you've done all these uh, commercials. And I, I would guess that actually the majority of the work that you've done over your career isn't like accessible to a lot of people. Right. That's probably true. Do you feel weird about that? Or do you feel like this is just part of what I've done? And You know something? Are you going to put out a DVD someday? (laughs) (laughs) You know, as far as people ever seeing my commercials or or seeing some of the the other short pieces or theme park pieces that I've done, you know, first of all, if you go to theme parks, you can see them. Yes. Okay. If you go down to the Mexico Mexico Pavilion and, and uh, you know, go into the, the ride, the Grand Fiesta Tour, you can see the new Three Caballeros animation. At Epcot. It's there at Epcot, yeah. and you'll probably, you know, it'll probably be there for the next 20 years. So mm-hmm. I'm not too worried that people won't see it. <laughs> right, right. Uh, if you go to Hong Kong and you, you go to uh, Lantau Island in the village of Nangping, where there is this enormous Buddha that, you know, pilgrims go to visit via cable car. Uh, you can see a monkey's tail playing there, you know, and for those who don't know, that's basically my Buddhism by way of Warner Brothers film. Um, <laughs> you know, it has a very, very gentle Buddhist message about, you know, greed and, and uh, you know, these three monkeys are basically, you know, uh, their names, which we never actually state, are Clever, Doofus, and Tagalong. And Clever is the one who thinks that he knows how to get something accomplished, and he gets Doofus, the big lug, and Tagalong, the one who's always trying to imitate Clever, you know, to help him in his bidding. Mm-hmm. But he's basically the architect of all of these plans that go wrong. What they're trying to do is steal a peach from the hand of the ancient monkey king. Um, and what the ancient monkey king is trying to show him is that it's not about you. It's not about, you know, whether you get a peach or not. It's about you sharing mm-hmm. and, you know, when you give to others. So basically I constructed it like a huge, you know, high definition Warner Brothers cartoon. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. gag after gag of clever trying in vain to steal this peach, you know, and, and eventually having to learn a lesson, mm-hmm. you know, um, and it's really fun. You know, the, the, uh, the producers, Alan Yamashita and, and Scott de las Casas, you know, really gave me a lot of free reign 
in terms of the story. They had other people working on it. They had other people who had boarded a version before I got on. Mm -hmm. uh, they had a couple of writers working things out as well. Um, but basically, once they had the kind of basic story points where they wanted them, they let me gag it up to the hilt. And, and you know, one thing that's great about it is that it's essentially a pantomime film, you know, that you can express through the characters' movements and poses and timing what each one of them is thinking and who each one of them is. You know, mm -hmm. it becomes obvious. You don't have to say that their names are clever, doofus, and tag along because it's obvious from the way that they move and behave that's exactly what they are. And the, um, you know, it's it's perfect for an international audience because it doesn't rest on dialogue to say who these characters are. Mm -hmm. Everybody gets it because they recognize the behavior. You know, as caricatured as it is, they recognize, you know, each of these characters as separate, distinct personalities. And I think that's really what animation is all about. And you don't get those opportunities very often. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one thing I loved about the Fantasia pieces is we could define who the characters were in pantomime through their movement. Uh, and it's the kind of thing where you may have to work a little harder to enjoy it, to watch it, not unlike a silent film where you actually have to pay attention to find out what's going on. I, I mean, when I'm working at home, I can have the TV on beside me while I'm drawing and never have to turn my head 90% right. of the time because I can tell what's going on with the soundtrack. And, you know, with this kind of animation that we're talking about, which is what all, you know, great animators used to do, uh, you have to watch it. You know, you can't listen to a Roadrunner cartoon. <laughs> you can't listen to a Tom and Jerry cartoon. Okay, you can, like me, if you're a geek. But <laughs> you can't actually tell what's going on unless, like me, the geek, you've memorized every frame. Uh -huh. But um, other than that, it's a kind of thing where you can't really appreciate the nuances of the personality unless you actually watch it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I come back to that you know, saying Chuck Jones used to have, if you can turn down the sound and tell what's going on, it's animation. Yeah. If you can turn down the picture and know what's going on, it's radio. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. And that, uh, I, I wish more people could see it, the monkey short, because it is a, like a one-off camera. It's one set mm -hmm. and it's, it's really long, isn't it? It's 12 minutes. Yeah. yeah it's amazing. It's, yeah. it's, it's one shot short. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, we, I wanted it that way because, well, first of all, it's made that way because it's designed for this particular venue. Mm, is it interactive? Uh, well, it's done in a venue that they call Tree Theater, where it, it, the outside looks like an enormous Bodhi tree. And as you go down underneath into the theater, it's like the roots are hanging down mm. and the vines are hanging down. And you see bits of temple wall all around you. And then what you're actually looking at on the screen is basically a cracked portion of the wall through which you are viewing the animation. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I did, which I, I thought helped make it funnier, was uh, when they originally conceived it, they wanted that to be a, a solid wall with the rest of the stone carvings on it. And 
you know, the monkeys would chase the peach around throughout all of those carvings. And uh, I asked for two things, and I showed them the boards, and they bought it. One was, let's break the wall, and that way you can see a piece of the, of the temple wall with the monkey king in the middle, but you have depth now. Now you can actually have them in and around and, mm-hmm. you know, in deep space. Not just so in front and so of forth, Not yeah. just on the surface yeah. of, that, uh, of that stone carving. And the other thing I said is don't move the peach. I think it's far funnier to leave the peach exactly where it is mm-hmm. and have every attempt <laughs> from all angles try and get at it instead of having the monkey king manipulate the peach you know, and making them follow, it just makes it that much more unattainable for yeah. it never to move. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, I have all these questions. I'm like, I oh, will skip that for now. But you mentioned something that makes me want to go back to it and talking about in uh, storyboarding. Like the first show that I animated anything on was Rhapsody in Blue. And I was lucky because I had your storyboards and I knew if I didn't deviate from that, it would work. <laughs> and I was just wondering, when you're boarding, are you picturing what the animated scene will look like? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when I board, you know, that's mm, incorporating my animation thinking mm-hmm. as well. You know, and in the case of something like Rhapsody, I'm boarding to the music as well. So I'm boarding based on where I know the music is going and what kind of poses and attitudes would work with those particular passages. Um, now, of course, in your case, what you did was plus it, which is great. <laughs> you know, it's a kind of thing where um, your scene cuts directly after uh, a scene of Andreas's where he's dancing with the monkey right. in front of the peanut wagon and he gets hauled off and cut to your scene and he's dangling in Margaret's hand. This is John, the character the, you know, who doesn't want to grow up. And she plunks him on the ground, you know, and he's gone immediately from joyous to moody resignation of having to trail along behind her mm-hmm. as she walks into the dog emporium. And it's a very short scene, but you got everything in it. You know, first of all, you know, the music's going, you know, Mm -hmm. and you're animating the dangling and the drop to those musical melody bits. And you're showing the change of attitude from being, you know, caught unawares and and unhappy about it to changing into I've got to follow her again you know trudging along behind her and you do it with the walks and you do it with your timing and that to me that's what animation's all about that's really you know I mean at the time people like Tom Schumacher would say you know your animation you know when you get your animation into the real it takes the smallest step from storyboard to finish of any other director. And on the one hand, I think he meant that as a compliment. On the other hand, I felt like it was negating what the animators were truly bringing to it because I was not pre-animating these scenes. Mm-hmm. You know, we would talk about it. We would look at the sheets. We would, we would determine, you know, what should happen when, but most of it's verbal and most of it 
really comes across in the animation. And all the animators, yourself included, added so much to the performances of those characters, you know, that I was actually kind of upset that Tom said something mm-hmm. like that because I don't think he realized just how much the animators really did add to that process. And, you know, by extension, how much cleanup added to that process too. Um, Emily Giuliano, who is our uh, head of cleanup on that, keeper of the Hirschfeld line, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were compelled to make it look like Hirschfeld drawings. And really that was in, in first of all, it was in the structure of the way the characters were designed, but, it, you know, it rested very much on the quality of the line work yeah. that was done in the final film. The fact that they could do it so well, and I'll give Vera uh, Lanford Pacheco credit as well. I mean, they were kind of co-heads. Uh, the fact that they could do it so well and it held up in IMAX <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> made me very, very happy. Uh, you know, and it's it's something where, actually, I know the cleanup artists were in, in particular were very pleased that their work didn't feel hidden. It was actually there on screen. You could see a beautiful thick mm-hmm. and thin. The mm-hmm. line work was all there for everybody to see. And it didn't get buried under, you know, uh, self lines and, and colored inks and all that kind right. of stuff. It was a black line like a Hirschfeld drawing. Yeah. And, and there it was. So, you know, I just think everybody did a marvelous job. That's really one of the nicest things about working at a studio like Disney's and and working on any of these kinds of projects is it always takes a step up from one stage to the next stage to the next stage. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what this t- place does beautifully. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I didn't really mean to talk about my shot, but um, <laughs> I wonder, like, I, I just kind of realized this in what you were saying is uh, you're describing the shot. And I think I, I never really thought about it this way, but for me, for an, an animator, having animated that shot, like what, seven eight years ago Mm -hmm. it's you're so invested in doing it that it's ingrained in your memory (laughs) and i was wondering how these animators can talk about these shots they did 50 years ago now i kind of get it because you don't forget what you've poured your heart into you know no it becomes part of you absolutely you know it's it i mean especially working on features it's kind of like another child you're raising, Mm -hmm. you know, and then when the feature's done, it's like you're sending the kid off, you know, to, to find his way in the world, (laughs) you know, and, and you become very involved with how well those characters work and what your contribution is. And that's another thing that makes the movies last and makes them compelling when we do our jobs well enough, you know, they can go out in the world and survive Mm -hmm. (laughs) and entertain people. It's kind of eye-opening. Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) So on Looney Tunes Back in Action, I saw that you did some voices. And was this, obviously, when you were 15, you did voices on the, what was the show? What's My Line? Oh, on To Tell the Truth. (laughs) To Tell the Truth. Although that was sound effects. That wasn't vocal. That was just slide whistles and crashes. uh, Was Looney Tunes the first time you actually did voice work for animation? Uh, I had done some under the table here and there. I'd, I'd done some Taft-Hartley stuff. And the Taft-Hartley Act means you can do a voice once but not be a member of the Screen Actors Guild. Mm-hmm. So I got Taft-Hartley a couple of times. Uh, I did a Tweety for Daryl Van Sitters on, uh, you know, a um, an environmental commercial. Um, and so what was happening is before we had actually selected the final voices on the film – 
I'd been doing all the characters in scratch, mm -hmm. you know, for the reels, you know, and eventually, you know, they picked who they wanted for Bugs and Daffy, and that was Joe Alasky, who did a fine, fine job. And the man literally channels Daffy Duck. Hmm. Um, and Joe wanted me to do Marvin the Martian. Uh, I had done Scratch on Speedy Gonzalez, so they let me do Speedy. <laughs> and we had a few people try out for Tweety. And I think they felt I was the closest on Tweety, so I did Tweety. Um, and just tons of fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, if just, you want, it, I can it, embarrass myself. Was it just years of practice that got you to this yeah, point? Yeah, I mean, everybody else had dates, and I taught myself how to do Donald Duck and uh -huh. Bugs Bunny and Marvin the Martian. All right, you know. so pick a character. What are you going to give us? Okay. You got the Marvin Martian. Okay, uh, yes, I'm wearing a Marvin the Martian shirt. <clears throat> Where's the kaboom? There's supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. Anyway. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I'm just kind of getting near the end here, but uh, you've done uh, The Magic Lamp, uh, Disney's 50th commercials, mm -hmm. uh, the Opus screen test, which mm -hmm. I, I guess is online. I've seen it. Um, <laughs> what do you feel is something that CG still is trying to conquer or something that you know is possible that just hasn't happened yet? Boy, is that a leading question. I know. Um, you know, I don't any, mean it in a negative way. I just, no, no. You know. uh, anytime that I've done CG, and when I say done CG, I've directed it. I mm -hmm. haven't animated it. But I've been fortunate enough to work with people who can achieve the results I'm looking for. Um, I've always tried to make it be as non-CG looking as possible <laughs> in order to make it have the same energy, organic quality, and fun of the best hand-drawn animation, um, which is perfectly doable in CG. A lot of times people don't do it because they feel it's going to be too time-consuming or it's going to break the pipeline or it's going to do lots of, lots of things that they don't even want to consider, which is a shame because doing that kind of animation, I think, is... Well, let's put it this way. I think a lot of people in CG these days use the limitations of the medium and call it a style. Mm -hmm. I'm being very controversial here, but a lot of people, well, CG is a different style. You know, you can be a lot more subtle with it. And you can do all these little eye darts and things. But what you can't do, seemingly, is really make a character organic. You know, really make great changes in shape and, and, you know, facial muscles and all that kind of stuff and graphic shapes. But you can. Mm -hmm. You can. You have to conceive the models and conceive the characters in a way that is not your usual way of doing CG. Typically in CG, you layer things. You do the gross body movement. Then you put the facial on top and the legs on top. It's one reason a lot of CG walks don't work very well mm -hmm. is because they do the torso first and add the legs, which is crazy. It means that no walk actually has a push-off. <laughs> and so all the walks look floaty um, as opposed to the way you would do it in hand-drawn is actually conceiving the, the push-off, thrusting that torso forward. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so it's a kind of thing where it's kind of bass-ackwards, if you will, in the way that CG is done a lot of times, although strides are being made in making it more organic, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Um, but it's not a natural thing for CG to do unless you conceive it that way from the outset. Um, and I think CG is still in its infancy. You know, a yeah. couple of years ago, I would say it's in Steamboat Willie land, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, it's advanced beyond Steamboat Willie. Maybe we're uh, midpoint through the Silly Symphonies now. <laughs> but there's still so much more that can be developed in CG. And I think a lot of it should come from classic 2D handling and the way that that stuff has been done well for the last 70, 80 years. Mm-hmm. Um the people who invented the medium during that period really became so refined at it and and learned how to utilize it to such a degree. It's like a great violinist playing, you know, a Stradivarius, mm-hmm. you know, and we're not there yet in CG. Yeah, and they did it rather quickly. Yes, they did. You know, they did it. So, I mean, it's it's stunning to look, say, at the drafts from Song of the South and just see the same four animators, you know, mm-hmm. Thomas Johnston, Paul <laughs> Davis, Thomas Johnston, Paul Davis, Thomas Johnston, Paul Davis. You know, there's like nobody else on the drafts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and to think that they could produce a prodigious amount of quality animation and, you know, Practically, it seems, without breaking a sweat. I mean, they all had lives outside of the studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. And that's because they knew their medium so well. Um, and I think certain conclusions were arrived at over all of those years that just work as basic ideas, basic principles, the strength of a storytelling pose, you know, um, how don't make extraneous movement when you want an audience's eye to go somewhere in particular. You know, I mean, uh, stop moving the body if you want to see a facial expression change, you know, all mm-hmm. sorts of things that they wound up, you know, refining over the years yeah. uh, that were just great, great ideas. I don't want to say rules. I want to say ideas. Mm-hmm. Now, by the same token... CG is three-dimensional. And so there are things that you can do in CG that you cannot do in 2D. And it's great to see CG come up with solutions to actually break their CG-ness in a different way than hand-drawn would do it. You know, for example, in the first Toy Story, uh, one of the things that they would do is um, stagger the blinks. In other words... You know, on a normal blink, both eyes would shut at the same time and open at the same time. Um, in Toy Story, because they're dealing with hard plastic characters, they would actually have one lid go down a little earlier than the next lid, and then that one would rise and the other one would follow about two frames later. Mm-hmm. And that gave you a sense of fluidity by just the way they approached that that they couldn't get, that it would look too mechanical if they actually did a normal blink in CG. And so um, it's a kind of thing where there are always going to be things that you come up with that suit a particular medium. One of the things that I 
am not a huge fan of in, in CG is arbitrary motion blur. And it's one of the things that I've done on any of the CG that, that I've been involved with is reduce the motion blur to absolutely, you know, like 10, 20% mm-hmm. tops, tops. Um, because what I want is the actual form of the character itself to give you as much fluidity as possible so that you can actually get it in the frames themselves in the way you would in hand-drawn yeah. as opposed to, you know, hoping that motion blur will make it fluid. And I think that's yeah. one thing that still makes CG feel like moving toys. It's uh, true. I mean, just doing it, it's like we back away from changing shapes that much because it just almost looks funny with the motion blur on top of it. Mm-hmm. So we just kind of move things around normally right? and let the blur do it. And it is kind of a, a dying art of uh, wipes and, and dragging shapes and all that stuff. You know, uh, several years ago, I went up to Pixar to do a couple of talks and uh, Glenn McQueen, who's no longer with us, unfortunately at the time, who was animation director on a lot of their, you know, seminal films, um, was showing me tests that they were doing on Monsters, Inc. And, you know, he's showing me a test on Sully. And as he moved his arm forward, they had a program for uh, dynamics on the fur. So he moved his arm forward and the fur went wagga, 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 wagga and settled under his arm. And he said, look at all that overlap we get for free. And I never said it at the time, but what I was thinking is, and look what you don't get by having it for free. What you don't get is somebody making that arm point and all of the fur dragging behind it to emphasize the strength of that point and then catching up. You know, Mm -hmm. what you get is dynamics, but you don't get that extra artistic stylization that you can get that says, Everything supports that movement, Mm -hmm. which is really what you can do in hand-drawn much more than you can do in CG. You know, if you look at a fur-covered character in CG, you know, there are a lot of great strides being made in terms of the manipulation of facial facial muscles and, and body shapes and things like that. But the fur is always texture mapped on top and it can follow the squashes and stretches but it doesn't support them in the same way as, for example, the fur on the sides of Shere Khan's face, you know, where he can overlap that or stretch it based on how much he's stretching his jaw. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what it doesn't do. It follows what, what the action is doing, but it doesn't emphasize what the action is doing, you know. And I think that's really the, the, the one of the more compelling things about the hand-drawn medium is that everything you can do can organically support the idea of what you're trying to say, whether it's the stretch in a jaw or whether it's, you know, the thrust of movement in a particular direction. Um, you know, I think those are the kinds of things. You can also draw things so that they all have a sense of give to them in hand-drawn so that you are aware that everything is in motion all the time. Mm-hmm. There's always a little bit of compelling drag or, or, or compelling movement that says this is a character that's alive in constant movement rather than putting the model in that place and 
maybe distorting a portion of the model to try and get a similar effect, although most people don't tend to distort in CG as well. And I think that's a shame as well. It's, you know, when you do it well, no one knows you're doing it. Yeah. It just feels right. And you can do it in CG as well as you can do it in hand-drawn. It's just people don't approach things that way. <laughs> <laughs> so just when you think you're getting it, oh, Eric comes and smashes you. <laughs> 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 well, uh, I think we'll kind of wrap it up. I was just, you've been at Disney for more than a year now. Two years. Two years now. Mm-hmm. How is it? Is it okay? It's fine. How is it with you? It's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, um, you know, one thing that's kind of nice about being here during this period is you feel like you're back on the ground floor of another rebirth in the studio. Mm-hmm. That, you know, people are very connected and trying to do really quality work, you know, and there's hand-drawn coming back. There's great strides being made in the CG stuff. Um, and... Uh, and I have to say, I'm seeing some very nice-looking CG stuff coming out these days. So, you know, uh, it's a kind of thing where more and more there will be this cross-pollinization between both sides yeah. that I think will work uh, to the studio's advantage. I mean, it's not um, an accident that the place was renamed Walt Disney Animation Studios. And we're not saying it's feature animation. We're not saying it's hand-drawn. We're not saying it's CG. It's animation. We're doing animation. Mm-hmm. The end. And whatever forms that takes, it should be at a quality level, high enough and compelling enough to have the Disney name on it. Nice. Okay. Well, I think we're done. Okay. That's awesome. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's Mm. been great. That concludes my interview with Eric Goldberg. Again, I want to thank Eric for his time in doing this interview. It's been a while since the last show, so I do have a few voicemails to play. Here's Sam from San Antonio, Texas. Hey, Clay. Uh, this is Sam from San Antonio, Texas. I'm just calling to let you know I'm really enjoying the show. Keep up the good work. And I just had a question about Glenn Keane for you. I was just wondering, I'm sure you get a lot of calls about this. I'm just wondering when the next show with him is going to be. And uh, if you can maybe talk a little bit about his uh, project he's working on now. And uh, thanks a lot. Keep up the good work. Bye-bye. Hey, Sam, I uh, I will have to check back in with Glenn and see when he could be available for another interview. I do think it has been long enough, and this year would be a great time to revisit with him. Uh, so thanks for the reminder, and thanks for the call. Here's Jan from Washington, D.C. Hi, Clay. This is Jan from Washington, D.C., and I'm a high school senior who's aspiring to be an animator someday, hopefully by like studying at LMU or some school like that out in California. And I just wanted to let you know that your podcast is just so inspiring to me just being able to hear all those interviews from people like Glenn Keane and James Baxter and just hearing them talk so honestly about their work it's just it's nice it just really solidifies my desire to get into the industry and I don't know it's a really great thing my one issue though is that I kind of feel that women animators don't really get they tend to get kind of overlooked in the industry and so in the future if you could maybe get some interviews with girl animators 
that would be really interesting. And I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who would agree with me. So um, thank you, and I wish you good luck in the rest of the shows. Thanks. Hi, Jan. I'm glad you called because you're not the only person who has asked for some feminine presence on the show, and I would love to see more women in animation. So I'm working on it, I promise. Women coming soon. And here are a couple more messages. The first is from Nathaniel from My Neck of the Woods, and then there's David. Hey, Clay, this is Nathaniel Lark calling from Burbank, California. Just listened to part two of your Ken Duncan podcast. And at the end of it, you were asking for responses or feedback from the listeners about um, the length of the shows. I actually prefer a longer show. I think it's wonderful that you have a longer show. I'm an illustrator. I work from home, and I just love to listen to the podcast while I'm working away at the drawing board. It's it's great, man. It really, it keeps me inspired while I'm uh, sometimes grinding, uh, grinding out some illustrations that I'm not maybe naturally all that interested in doing. So I love the podcast. Keep it up. It's really fantastic. And a longer show is definitely good for me. Love the marathon. Doing a great job, man. Keep it up. Thanks. Hi, this is David Walter, and I'm a huge fan of the animation podcast. And it's so inspiring to hear the legends discuss the art form, especially when you can hear the passion in their voices. And I wanted to say uh, thanks so much for taking the time to make it happen. Uh, I, for one, would love to see more interviews with people from the visual development side of the world, uh, like Paul Felix, uh, Chen Yu Chang, or Carter Goodrich. And I'm pretty sure I'd give my firstborn child for an interview with uh, Nico Marlette. Uh, anyways, I'm a character designer in L.A., and I've got a blog at uh, davidwalter.blogspot.com. It's David W-O-L-T-E-R. And the most recent set of designs I've posted called the Animalympics I was actually drawn to a soundtrack made up entirely of uh, animation podcasts with Ken Duncan and Aaron Goldberg. So again, thanks so much for the time and effort that goes into the podcasts. And uh, keep up the great work. Thanks. Thanks for the messages, Nathaniel and David. I hear this a lot, and I am very proud to provide the entertainment for so many creative projects. Uh, in case the audio didn't come through, uh, David's website is davidwoltr.blogspot.com. If you want to leave a voicemail for the show, the number is area code 916-AP-FUNNY, as in animation podcast funny. You can also send me a recording through my Skype account, which is animation podcast, that's all one word. Or you can go to animationpodcast.com and click on the voicemail link for all the info. So why don't you stop by animationpodcast.com for show notes and links for all the interviews and leave a comment while you're there. And one last thing before I go, like I said before, I worked on Bolt and I really can't wait to see the final product this month. And I was very fortunate to supervise the character of Rhino the Hamster. And uh, it was an amazing experience. And I know a lot of animators did some incredible work, not just on Rhino, but also on the rest of the film. And this isn't a paid ad or anything like that. It's just me saying that I really hope you'll check it out and uh, let me know what you think. And of course, I want to thank our sponsor, AnimationMentor.com, the online animation school. Be sure to sign up for their newsletter at AnimationMentor.com because my exclusive podcast is coming very soon and you wouldn't want to miss it, would you? So go sign up and you won't miss a thing. That wraps it up for show number 30. Next up, we'll have a new guest. Plus, keep your eyes open for the exclusive show for AnimationMentor.com. I'll see you next time and thanks for tuning in.